Last episode, we learned what happens sometimes when you get in deep with the boss's wife. But what happens when that wife is played by Rita Hayworth? Turns out, there's a song that spells out exactly what trouble you're in for. When Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked the lantern in Chicago town, they say that started the fire that burned Chicago down. That's the story that went around, but here's the real lowdown. Put the blame on Mame, boys. Put the blame on Mame. Mame kissed a buyer from out of town. That kiss burned Chicago down. So you can put the blame on Mame, boys. Put the blame on Mame. Don't say she didn't warn you. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. Hate is a very exciting emotion. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. What have we done to each other? What will we do? I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. Silencio. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together and watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Pelzer. And tonight, it's a Rita Hayworth double feature, two very notable slices of classic Hollywood, and not only notable for being Hayworth's two most famous roles, the Gilda and Lady from Shanghai. They also happen to be two damn good looking films noir produced by Columbia Pictures, more budget than our average viewings on this podcast. They also happen to work neatly as a second installment for our look into what happens when you tango with the boss's wife. And speaking of tango, let's kick things off with a flight down to Argentina. It's Charles Bedore's 1946 noir, Gilda. What did you say to him? I just told him if a man answers, hang up. About me, Gabe. If I'd been a ranch, they would have named me the Bar Nothing. There never was a woman like Gilda, or a picture like Gilda. Columbia's outstanding screen triumph, starring Rita Hayworth with Glenn Ford. That's what I told Bell, and that's what you're going to tell me. Making me deceive my husband. I got some news for you, Gilda. He didn't just buy something. He's in love with you. One man bought Gilda. Another hated her and hungered for her. I hate you too, Johnny. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. Directed by Charles Fedor and starring Rita Hayworth, Glenn Ford, and George McReady. Screenplay by Joe Isinger, Marion Parsonet, and an uncredited, uncredited Ben Hecht. Uh, Gilda follows Glenn Ford, who's playing Johnny Farrell, a gambler in Buenos Aires who ends up taking a job working for casino magnate Balin Munson. What names? I mean, really, just what fantastic names throughout this, this entire film. So good. Uh, Johnny is tasked with managing the casino, but ends up spending just as much of his time attempting to manage Balin's wife, Gilda, played by Rita Hayworth, in her most iconic performance. Casino business gets dicey with the arrival of Nazis, this being Argentina and all, which makes for a dangerous backdrop for Johnny and Gilda to strike up a tempestuous romance. Perhaps I should say rekindle. 
I, they, they, they have, uh, they have a, a, a past after they all. They have a past. But yeah, I mean, this is made for Rita Hayworth and it shows. They let her dance, sing, flip her hair. Oh, this viewing, this is like, this is why I like to rewatch movies sometimes. <laughs> because I, I, not, I, not that I'd written this movie off, but I'd, I definitely felt a, a real spike in appreciation this time around. Uh, the kind that makes me excited to revisit things, the kind that makes me excited for this classic Hollywood. It's just that, I don't know, this hit me in a way that I'd previously dismissed. Same. No, I, um, yeah, I was looking back at my Letterboxd review from the last time I, I watched it and it was, you know, and I thought it was, a, yeah, even then I, I thought it was great. But I, I held it against the film that it um, it moves a little fast sometimes and the plotting's a little funky sometimes. You know, it's a little convenient, I think is what I said. Um, but this time I was just like, it doesn't matter. It, it's not about the plot. It's about the vibes, the texture, the little details. Uh, and these three freaks who just want to like fuck each other up. It's so good. It's so good on that front. And uh, and I... I, like, I don't know. It's probably been, honestly, it's probably been 10 years since I saw this. I, mm. I'm not, I can't even remember when I, I watched it the first time. It's been a while. Uh, and, and in the interim, I'm sure I've, I've uh, every now and then, if I'm, if I'm coasting through clips from classic Hollywood, I'll play the, uh, I'll play Rita's performance, put the blame on Mame. Uh, it's a, it's a, oh, real firecracker of a of a scene that's like it's nightclub noir at its at its best but mm -hmm. but for the most part i'd like i'd kind of written off the rest of the the story as uh as you know uh, a, a an elegant but kind of muddled noir but it's not it, to, it it's so much more than that uh and uh i I would go. I would go as far as to say I, I think I like this more than any other classic Hollywood piece that we've covered so far. It just, it just wow. hits. I, I don't um, think I'd go it, quite that far, but also I don't blame you. Um, and and I don't know. I think it's just a a case of of a lot of things working really really right here, and that mm -hmm. has to start with with Hayworth. She of course, like you said, that she's this was designed as a vehicle for her, uh, and. She looks damn good in it, uh, and that's not even doing it justice. She looks probably as good as any human has ever looked on on camera here. Yeah, I mean, she just, the, from the moment she pops into view, she is dominating the screen. The camera loves her. It's that that hair flip right from the, the first moment, and it's knowing how it, it's taking that that classic song, taking Put the Blame on Mame, and it's, and it's stringing it out mm -hmm. perfectly throughout where we first get it playing over, over uh, uh, playing in a recording as she's, as she's getting dressed. And then she's singing it a cappella late at night after, after the casinos closed down. And then finally at the tail end, we get the, the full on performance. That as is how striptease, you... like, yeah. Oh, uh, how, I mean, uh, that, that's how you, you slowly roll something out and it yeah. just, and you're just waiting for it, and it, and knowing it's knowing it's coming only makes it even better. Knowing <laughs> it's it's waiting for you down the line, I I, I love it. So uh, Rita Hayworth is married to Orson Welles at the time. She she also began a decades long affair with Glenn Ford on the set mm. of this movie. 
and her, and her very image in this movie, which she it's very cultivated. The the producer from Columbia, Harry Kahn, um, is uh, is largely responsible for kind of trying to craft her in a certain in a certain way in this very certain way. Right. I mean, the studio has um, at that time were very much him and Warner and um, uh, what's his name, Zanuck over at Fox were all very much like I know how to craft a star, and I am going to shape their image to sell to the the audience that extra textually i know how to make somebody iconic and we'll be coming back to that in our next installment mm. or in our next film something works spectacularly here clearly uh, and rita rita becomes so iconic and this is like the this is what the the whole bombshell concept it doesn't come from her here but she becomes the epitome of it and she gets plastered on a uh, photo of her stuck on on the atomic bomb test at Bikini Atoll and and a stencil reading Gilda put on the bomb <laughs> as it's dropped. And her image here just kind of ripples forward in cinema too, like Shawshank Redemption. Mm, um, yeah. of course. In Mohan Drive, when we when we come back around right. to that, Rita, Rita Hayworth, it, it it so much comes back to her. This is this is a pivotal performance. Yes. Although I will say as much as she is great in this. I think I love her just a little bit more in uh, her first of two Fred Astaire uh, films, You Were Never Lovelier, which is a a Taming of the Shrew adaptation. I've not seen that. I would really like to. I mean, I think overall its reception is mixed, but I think I personally, A, love it as a rom-com. B, the two of them are my, my, she is my favorite Fred Astaire dance partner. And supposedly he said the same thing that he was like, after he had, kind of his towards the end of his career he was like Rita Hayworth was my favorite dance partner and I think it shows the two of them just have immense chemistry and fun together on the dance floor she's so good here I think she's great in our next in our next film I and I feel like I'm generally otherwise underwatched on on Hayworth so I need to I need to get on that um, I think the other interesting thing is that like both here and in that film she's she gives a very modern performance yeah, I think that's I I think that is spot on. Um, she, no, he, she, maybe that maybe that is the case. I don't know. I feel like uh like right around the same is it is just the year of the killers. I like I feel like Hayworth and Burt Lancaster both are like mm. like inject some some real like real modern feel into into a a decade that is otherwise still so so caught up in a, a, a certain type of performance and we get glenn ford again um i always enjoy it's always nice to see him pop up his intensity is very good for especially like these kinds of genre b movies no and you could like this is built around hayworth you need someone who can hold his own um but but, not steal attention it's not gonna exactly and he's he's so good at that uh i i uh i guess uh on on our boss's wife dynamic on our on our radar here. Let's talk about it these freaks. It doesn't get better. I um to, I mean Johnny wants point, to fuck Balan, right? Oh, clearly. And Balan wants to watch as he fucks his wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he's like, please cuck me. Yeah. I just want oh. you to cuck me and not anybody else. It's it it's so apparent. I don't I it the 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 film is just enjoying these moments and the, Hello, the Johnny. Johnny the the Johnny Balan scenes are as let's as, do as that shall we? As, oh my god! I feel like I wrote down a uh, a lot 
of quotes from this too but but, it, but the whole thing is just so laden with sexual ten- you know have you ever done with anybody else i'm talking about dancing i'm still talking about dancing you're just like ah oh, okay yeah 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 Ah oh, man, yeah. That's what I talk about. That's why I talk about texture. I'm just like it is just so. It's just all about the little pleasures of this film. I know him talking about her like like he's like dealing with his laundry, mm. and he's gonna be and, laundry. Oh, uh, get it now. And there and, and and this is shot very very well. And there's a yes. there's a particular. Uh, both of our films tonight are shot by Rudolf Mott. Who who also did Passion of Joan of Arc and and Vampire and and To Be or Not to Be and some great dryers has, has some uh, has a great track record but he shot both of our which are two of the I think best looking noirs of the the forties uh, that we're we're going over tonight there's there's a shot that I that I just I loved so much that that frames the three of them up staggered uh, with with Balin kind of foregrounded and, and they're all in different gradients uh, and, and, and block each, each distanced a little bit with Gilda at the far back. And, um, and I, I, I don't know, I just loved, I, I loved how it used shadow. I loved how it moved bodies around in the frame. Um, Hayworth is always, is always glowing, mm-hmm. but, but it's, it's like, it's not just, it's not just adoration like like you can tell with postman uh, that 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 yes it, the the camera is showing so much affection toward Lana Turner but but Hayworth really plays back and maximizes and she like she is uh, th- this is more than just knowing how to craft her image she knows what she's doing um yes 100% yeah it's it's all I mean, as much as um, Postman Always Rings Twice gives a great entrance, I mean, this is like the star making, like, in a, in a very literal sense, right? Not in like, a, oh, they were great and, and were fascinating, but just a movie built around making somebody a star. Like, this is it. Yeah. Um, and then and rising totally to the occasion. Uh, and yeah, it wouldn't work if she didn't have the stuff, but she has the stuff. Do the old plagiarize your letterboxed review. I um what I wrote down furiously while I was watching this was like <laughs> Phantom Thread, because that's that that is what came to mind and to a lesser extent, Duke of Burgundy. And and that underscores the this feels modern in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Um it feels modern in its approach to sexual uh sexual tension and 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 relationship dynamics, power dynamics, um, it it feels so much more concerned with with those interpersonal dynamics of the noirs mm-hmm. that I was like I'm I, like all of any comparison to noir is not quite doing this justice because it doesn't behave like act a noir to behave. But when I and I hadn't watched this since before I saw Phantom Thread for sure. But like I think about how that film takes uh a what you what you presume to be a historic romance and and it and and it twists the knife in and gives you something that you did not think you signed up for uh, mm-hmm. and and that's where i got to here yeah no i i did see that i thought those were really interesting comps and that probably helped me 
because I saw your review before I watched it, and that probably helped me with my my reframing of it too. That it is so much just about the the power dynamics between these three people that just happen to take the form of crime rather than or crime adjacent rather than uh, the more traditional drama uh, modes. Yeah, like I don't know is what is Gilda Noir is. I think so. It, I think it. I think it is. It There's, just, it, you know, I mean, somebody just like so a, many textual signifiers, right? There's narration. There's somebody coming from out of the past. It's. It is all bound up in crime, um, mm -hmm. and like, but it's. What's it's just not interested in those details, right? It's just there's just stuff happening at the casino all the time that are traditional noir things, but they all kind of are there to help put into relief the games happening between these three people. What's different from say this to Casablanca? Um, foreign set bound up uh, largely in, in, in a particular location, Nazis. Casablanca and kind of this feels so much more prestigious sure. than noir. So I think it makes it, and I, I, I would, I would agree. I firmly, I do think this falls in, in noir. I'm just, I, no, I, I think it's a really interesting you know, like way to what? frame. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's the fact that you are waiting for crime to happen throughout, right? Like you're waiting for somebody, it's going to go bad. Like instead of Chekhov's gun, we get Chekhov's knife stick and <laughs> It's yeah, it you're just waiting for it internally to to take a bad turn. Um, and I think also, you know, I think the the dialogue is just more on the hard boiled side. Like they're both they both are full of iconic lines, but nobody in in Casablanca is a romance. And while there this is about a kind of romance, nobody in Casablanca is gonna say, "I hate you, Johnny. I hate you so much," and mean, "I want to fuck your brains out." <laughs> And what the way she is just like so breathy throughout that entire film is uh, astounding. I, and, and you just like you get you really get the sense that all of them are just looking for the angle that they can they can torture each other, and they all love it. They all they 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 enjoy exerting whatever power they can, whatever move they can make, and and that's why. You have what I think. I think if you're approaching it like a like I would most most noir of the uh, of the era, um, I'd be like that's a tacked on studio ending. But mm -hmm. like in wake of seeing um, of seeing Phantom Thread, I'm like no, actually, damn it, I I do uh, unlike unlike in Postman where I really think they don't belong together. I do think that Gilda and Johnny belong together in a in a perverse way. I, yeah. I think they are good for each other. And I am okay with that. I am okay with with Balin making a, a, a 11th hour reappearance and, and, and stalking into proceedings, <laughs> uh, getting taken out by, uh, by what's his name, the, uh, by the bartender, right. um, uh, which I, I enjoyed that flourish. And, and, and then the detective writing it off. <laughs> and, you can't I, die I twice. Like, yeah, it's so it's nice. I don't know. There's something about this. If you're gonna have things come together just too neatly, um, like I, they, they, they deserved each other. They deserve that, and they can make each other miserable for the rest of their lives. Sounds great. <laughs>
Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I did not resent it either. It didn't, yeah, it didn't give me that, that bad taste in my mouth. Like it did most recently. And, uh, Postman always ranks twice. Although we didn't mention this in that episode. I did appreciate that that film quoted from the story since I hadn't read it. And I was finally like, that's why it's called the Postman always ranks twice. Oh, I like in my head, because I had, I had, I, in my head, that is like a ground we had covered or something like that. But I think I'm just, I'm like, layers of postmen are all just stacking up and now right. keeping well, track it's, what's been and to be fair like none of the other movie had a very brief aside about last last week's episode you know none of the other films reference the title so it doesn't matter and i'd watched it before and just forgotten but it, I, I, I must have forgotten because i've just always been like why is this called the postman always rings twice like what a mouthful of a title but of course you know the final speech and he's like yeah you know i, I was i was too nervous that i'd miss him a I was like, okay, it's that's a lot. I'm sure it works better as inter- internal narration than monologue. But anyway, we're right now we're talking about the great movie that is Gilda. Yes. Uh, oh, uh, it's all uh, the. I, I don't even know what part of the dynamic I like the best. They're all they're they're all just great together. But jo- Johnny and Valen are are such a blast playing off each other. Uh, I, it's it's delicious. <laughs> Yes, and when he when she like they get married and they go back to the place and his paintings there, and he's like, "This home is now a shrine to the man you killed." And you're like, "What a messy bitch!" Oh. I married you just to get my revenge that you killed the man I loved. <laughs> so it's so good. Uh, uh, I was born last night when you met me in that alley. Right. He says how, how he funny says somebody else also just was said that they were born the minute that they met me. We all have no past. And you're like, oh my god. Oh uh, so truly I don't I don't even know why I'd like not written it off, but like like consign this to just one of those good, not great um Hollywood studio flicks that you're you're supposed to catch up on. Um this is this is straight up one of my my favorite movies I've uh watched this year. Uh and uh, and uh, what what a delight! I don't know. Yeah, I just, it's I just delicious. It is just it. you savor every sip of it. It is it um, is fantastic. And, and it and it really nails the ending. Like that to yeah. me that that really that really helps. And it does all of this not not um, because until until the ending, it's not like it's not like there's like big a bunch of big thrilling set pieces in it or something like that it's, so, it's such an internal so much of this is just happening within the within the casino and, and and until you get to her final performance and then the that last stretch that comes after that um it's it's sitting by on razor sharp dialogue and mm-hmm. great performances mm-hmm. and uh, and and some and some really good photography to support it uh, yeah. uh, uh and and it does all of that so flawlessly it just it's it's I also don't know anything else that Charles Bedore has done. Um, I have been looking uh, it up. I've not seen a single other thing. The only thing I've seen of his is actually another Rita Hayworth, the uh, Rita Hayworth and um, Gene Kelly film, Cover Girl. Oh, I've not seen it. Nope. No. Which I did not love on a story level, and it does not know what to do with Gene Kelly. Uh, but Rita Hayworth is great in it. And uh, there is one great musical number in it with the two of them and the and the best friend character. Okay, well, it's enough for me to check out. 
yeah i mean like worth a watch yeah. but it, it yeah not not my favorite either, either of them which also if you look look at his, his at, at his filmography there's nothing else this this is the classic from it so yes. uh, yeah. so clearly a lot of things a lot of things going right here um and and i'm sure he deserves uh some some credit on that front no but, i mean it, uh, it is a, uh, it's a, a stylish movie are... it, it's very clever about some of its its framing and what it's doing and it does some really interesting um both of the and again i think it gets back to um the dp the shared dp but the both of these have a really interesting way of keeping um, an actor's face in shadows, but hitting just hitting the eyes with um, with a with a bit of light, so they still pop. But it uh, it is a technique that you don't often see. It it looks it just looks so good. Okay, so I'm now now that now, as I'm thinking uh, to about about Rudolf Mott and and his uh, and what he's shot, like. Imagine being the guy that one shot Passion of Joan of Arc, which is which is like the no film ever has done close ups as mm -hmm. as good as Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, but but our next film um, is one of the first Hollywood studio films shot almost entirely on location. He's just got like like the and then Gilda is is clearly shot on studio lots, uh, but. Uh, but it just it just sings. It's he's so good at. at um, I feel like he's he's such an adaptable cinematographer that I have not been giving the credit to <laughs> he deserves. Yeah, I mean his whole body of work here is some real real bangers in here. But uh, but yeah, I mean we're already kind of talking about it. So let's jump into the lady from Shanghai. From 1947, directed by an uncredited Orson Welles and starring Welles with a delightful and definitely accurate Irish brogue, <laughs> uh, along with uh, the inimitable Rita Hayworth, uh, plus Everett Sloan and Glenn Anders, also written by Orson Welles, as he tended to do, uh, with an uncredited William Castle, mm -hmm. uh, as well as Everett Sloan, uh, as well as uh, Charles Lederer and Fletcher Markle. Based on the novel "If I Die Before I Wake" by Raymond Sherwood King, uh, so Wells plays Michael O'Hara, who is Irish. In case you didn't know, uh, a sailor who meets the beautiful blonde Elsa Bannister, played by Hayworth, on a carriage ride in Central Park, saves her from a ruffian, and they get hired on to crew the boat run by her famed criminal defense attorney husband Arthur Bannister. They are sailing to San Francisco via the Panama Canal. Along with them is Arthur Bannister's law partner George Grisby, a man of questionable sanity. He's laughing, sweating, and talking about the bomb the entire time. He ropes Michael into a plot to fake his own murder. Michael agrees, planning to use the money Grisby pays him to run off with Elsa, never stopping to think, like, does this make sense? Uh, who he's fallen for hard. But once they land in San Francisco, the plan unravels swiftly, and Michael finds himself thrown from an idyllic sea voyage to a nightmarish descent through the looking glass of noir. I mean, this is yet another classic Orson Welles just gets into a pissing match with the studio and and loses and and when that happens we all lose we, we do um but i'm not gonna lie fred i love this movie to pieces <laughs> i um it's it it is cut to ribbons 
you can clearly see this is a damaged damaged goods. There's uh, um, horrible things have happened here, and yet uh, I don't know. I'm I am fascinated by it, and uh, and I am going to say a very sacrilegious thing right now, but this is my favorite Wells. <laughs> Fred is shaking his head, probably rightly so. But I'm I'm I'm, I'm second I, guessing being in this podcast with you. <laughs> Do I want to be associated oh, with uh, a heathen? It is. No, oh, no. All takes are welcome here. Uh, like I said, it's a safe I space. I get it. I get it. It's a mess in in some ways, but it's so it it looks so good, and um, it it really is one of the best looking films of the decade. I, it's I I think that the the photography is great, and I like I like the weirdo rhythm of this. When a shot spend... lasts long enough to appreciate it, photography is great. Yes, <laughs> um, I am. Uh, of course, I I would love to know what would happen uh, if we saw the original Wells cut, which was apparently an hour longer than what we Good got. God, this is a, a pretty tight hour and a half. Yeah, I can't even imagine what like the. I mean. You feel it. You definitely feel that it is missing a lot. The voiceover is, I mean, like literally the voiceover changes from line to line and you're like, oh, he had to do another bit of voiceover to, you know, get across some other thing that got cut out. But a whole extra hour is is pretty incredible. Yeah, I'm sure Orson Welles would would hate me for saying this was my favorite Orson Welles. So, so, so bring it on, I guess. I don't know. There's this the, it, it, this is like, like thematically though a sweet spot for me. We we have we have a, a some quality San Francisco location shooting. Um, we have we have like a hazy sea voyage that takes up an inordinate amount of time in this in this narrative um, that that lays the groundwork, um, and we have a dazzling final set piece, uh, which which. Uh, if nothing else, certainly lives up to the the, the hype of it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the final 10, 15 minutes is absolutely makes the whole the whole thing worth attending to. But yeah, it's like all of a sudden they go, oh, right, there's a plot. And then it's off to the races. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't even know where else to start. We have uh, we, we have um, <laughs> Hayworth and Orson Welles being married, but having their marriage falling apart by the end of this uh, and and being over by the time it's released, I'm pretty sure. Uh, we have Welles give, Welles kind of overriding um, Harry Kahn's vision of what Hayworth has to be and like, and, and instead giving her a very different look and having her cut her hair and bleach it. So she's got such a different, uh, she presents so differently between here and Gilda, just a, a year apart. Um, I, I'm I'm fascinated by that decision, and uh, and, and honestly, it kind of works for me. I think I think Hayworth comes across great here. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, it feels like classic Wells, puckish. You know that that uh, you know he he can't help but biting the hand that feeds, right? Yep, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, there, there's um, that accent, which we can't ignore. Uh, he tries very hard. 
How how how's it work for you, Fred? I bet that accent work would have been fine on a theater stage. <laughs> when you are really play it, to the cheap seats. It is it is odd that we get the juxtapos juxtaposition of 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 this being shot so much on location and feeling and feeling so starkly different than virtually every other noir to this point until uh, a forthcoming Orson Welles noir. Mm. Uh, th this, it really stands out. And then you have pulling the film in a different direction is that accent, that narration. But it, it's not like it pulls it toward a more hard-boiled side. No, it pulls it towards uh, Lucky Charms. Oh, I was a big boob. Um, that, I, that I was i was i was I, a right boob i i like i like it to a point um i don't i can't imagine it with anything else um at this point because it's already like there imprinted on my brain i'm trying to like like put myself in in what wells thought process was i mean it just feels general. like he's trying to be sort of the ultimate like hemingway hero right where he is irish <laughs> who are a downtrodden underdog, but still white group of people. Uh, he's uh, a traveling sailor, so he's worldly. He's gone all over, but he has to work to earn it. Uh, he's also a writer, so you know he's he's got the soul of a poet. He's well-read, but he's also fought the fascists in Spain. So you know he's he's just, and he stands up for the yeah, common man and he'll, does he'll, the right he'll thing. Get, he'll get in a fight for the right reason. For the right reason. I mean, he is sort of, he is like the ultimate Hemingway hero in that sense. He, you know, I, working class, way to put it. I but like that. poetic, but anti-fascist, uh, but not, but still a man of action um, and Irish. It does have a very Hemingway feel to that, that first half. Um, mm -hmm. Like, like this is the, the modern Melville. This is, this is where, this is where we've moved from a literary in a literary sense. And it, the film spends a lot of time on that voyage. Yeah. Um, it does not move quickly then. Yeah. And, it, and I think part of it too, is that it's like, he doesn't want to be in this movie. I think it's part of he's what's going on here as too. A, as a favor. He's doing. No, I don't mean the, I don't mean Wells. Oh, I mean, oh, the, Wells. the character does not want to be in this oh, movie, right? Yeah. He <laughs> like, he kind of has to be forced to be in the movie repeatedly. He's very passive the 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 film inflicts things upon him yeah uh, and it kind of justifies it because it kind of sets up to a much lesser degree than the our previous film the you know rich the rich and idle kind of messing around with the the underclass for their amusement is sort of the the subtext of a lot of what happens in the first half but um yeah he's just like I, this is trouble. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be on this boat. I want to get off this boat. Please stop making me be on this boat. I'm in love with you, but I don't want to be here. Please let me go. I mean, and, and so, yeah, just like I said, just kind of makes him passive. And I think it also, going back to sort of our conversation about the boss's wife, like triangle, I think it really weakens the uh, Michael Arthur spoke of that triangle right or that the line of that triangle that like you know there i do buy the chemistry between michael and elsa and arthur and elsa are definitely engaged in some kind of fucked up game and like arthur is using michael against elsa but he doesn't really care about michael in and of himself unlike i feel like the best of the boss's wife dynamics where it is like each each leg of the triangle is as is as important as the other this is an interesting thing and this i i, I would apply this kind of broadly to Wells films 
um, overall too. But I always feel like he, and, and this, this is, this will sound like a criticism, but it's not, to me, it really isn't. Uh, I don't mean it that way. He is so concerned with giving his, his actors some meat to chew on that it sacrifices a lot of the chemistry between them. Like, I feel mm. like he wants people to have a, a scene. He wants people to, to dig in and get some dialogue to really make uh, a meal yeah. out of. Yeah, that's a good but way to put it. He he's less concerned about the interplay between between right. two actors. No, um, that's that's very spot. Like anytime, I, if I think of any of the scenes, it's always one actor dominating that scene. It's not about the uh, two actors relating um, to each other. Um, yeah, like I think of Magnificent Ambersons and and the uh, um, and uh, the the Radiator and her slumped. I, Ever and 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 everything, everything came and I and and how and he's very generous to actors in some ways, but he's not he does he's not someone that likes to bounce them off each other in in organic ways. Agreed. But again, that's not a, a criticism necessarily. I don't mind. I like I like him letting people show off. Uh, but it does it does create a sense where there's not that uh, even though, even though he's married to Rita Hayworth, it's not like there's passion there right uh but the film luxuriates over her just watching her frame there lying lying on the boat in her bikini it i mean like right. like as you, a director you can feel the passion but as as a character in a scene you're like this is fine yeah yeah it's not and it's not bad i would i would there's nothing there's nothing about it that feels flat to me um it's just uh it's just not where his priorities are Agreed. Uh, also, for as much as I can't look away, and the camera doesn't want, can't let you look away from Rita Hayworth. Even things like I love, I love that damn aquarium scene, but I keep like looking at the big monster fish <laughs> looming, looming behind them. It's it's a busy film, and there's a lot, yes. there's a lot always going on at the periphery, uh, intentionally so clearly. But well, uh, I, like within the frame, yes. But then I think also the butchered pacing further contributes to that sense because it is just sort of like throwing, like sometimes it feels very haphazard how it goes from shot to shot where it's just literally like, okay, we've cut this five minute scene down to two minutes and we just need to get from like this actor to this actor to get this bit of narration in to get us out of the scene. What do you make of the courtroom? In you, like a, you who have many opinions on courtrooms. Um, so, Man, I don't know. Like some of it is fun. Because I do, I do think as the plot kicks in in the back half, that kind of helps the film. But there's a, a, I think there's a lot of like, he is still so passive through most of that. And so kind of awash in the conspiracy that it's tough to kind of track who wants what, why sometimes. And then also totally, I don't know, it's a little all over the place to be like, yes, I'm on the defense stand, I'm going to question my, you know, I'm the witness stand, I'm going to question myself, and it's, like... It's such it's a damn farce. Goofy um, as hell. I'm just like, oh, I, sure. I appreciated how, because, you know, most most courtroom scenes, how, how accurate really are they? I appreciated that this one was just like, screw it, we're going. Right. We're, we're going wild. And, and it doesn't pretend to be a thing that you would ever actually be watching. <laughs> Right, and like the grotesqueries um, I, of the of the audience in the courtroom watching and and commenting on, and it's but it's just like I don't I don't know what I don't feel the connection from that to the rest of them. You know what I mean? It's just all kind of like, and now this fun stuff's happening. I'm like, oh, okay. 
I, it feels to me like uh, a dream of a noir. Like if you like sure. imagine components of a noir and put them onto the paper, that they would they would land like in bits in um, fits and starts. It would look like this, but they're they aren't quite. I I totally understand just how much that 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 this cut has has sacrificed uh, the real flow between them. Mm -hmm. So you're just kind of as as the observer being thrown from one thing into another. And now that I'm saying all this too, I'm thinking about how, yes, Michael is, is a very passive protagonist. And it's like, at times it's easy to forget that he is the star. And yet because it's Orson Welles, because you never forget that Orson Welles is the star here right. and that he is the one stringing this together. So it's got a kind of unique setup that I normally would, normally if a, if a protagonist was, was that much backseat to his own story, I would I would dismiss it. But yet you still you like are watching Orson Welles and you know that Orson Welles is the one that at least right. is initially. No, yeah. He's just so big in it, life. It, yeah. It makes it makes for an odd way to assess it, I guess. And then it all ends with with the with the infamous or famous I mean, or whatever that the if, perfection that is the Hall of Mirrors. Right. If that 15 minutes was like on its own and be like five stars. Um, it's dazzling and it's obviously been copied time and time again. And it's one of those scenes that by the time you actually watch it in the, this movie, you've already experienced it via pop culture so many times. But no matter how many like Hall of Mirrors, the, it goes beyond just being like, where are you in the geography of the scene and goes like, it is full on expressionistic, right? Like it is, it is spliced together in that, in that same dreamscape sense or nightmare. Like by this point, I think you said it's a nightmare. And so in that way it is, an experimental film in a way that like I, I, I'm having a tough time thinking of another hall of mirrors scene that is, is at, equally experimental in what it's doing. And oh, so no, it just sort of there. takes the like literal version of this and is like, who's the reflection? Who's real? You don't know. And not like you're, you're completely lost in this world and you're in over your head. Right. You get like the dragon or man with a golden gun or, um, uh, or Manhattan murder mystery or all these things that are like aware of this, but they're, they're taking it so literally. This is just like full on German expressionism. Right. Um, funneled in. Um, it's, but even also before that, the, the rest of the, um, the Funhouse stuff where he's like, again, it's sort of capturing the, him being like, I, I realized I've been pushed and pulled the entire way along and I was a passive fool on my own journey just like I am now a passive fool going through this fun house. Apparently Wells has a 20 minute cut of that uh, in his, in his original film. And I so wish I could see what that looked like. I am intrigued. Like, um, alas is probably long since destroyed. Yeah. In I mean, comparing this to, uh, to Gilda, uh, it, it's clear that one is a, one is a fully realized vision and one is a bit compromised. Yes. But but I still, even though even though Rewatch has has uh, clarified that Gilda is the superior film, no questions asked, I really, really still have a lot of affection for this. I don't know. Sure. I mean there's I'm there's a lot to enjoy it. about it. Um, you know, I, I I am impressed by your ability to look past the ways that it's been compromised it's always worth watching what wells is doing with anything because he's always going to be pushing uh at the boundaries of, of what he can do with film 
it is my least favorite of the Wells films that I have seen. Ah, oh, but wait, wait. it's still better than a, a lot of movies that I've seen. He's he, he's always finding new ways to incite interest, and I just I I, I like how I I like I he is um, I like his ambition so much, and I like that he you, you know even when clearly as as starts to happen here his uh, relationship with the studio system begins to really fray. Um, well, I guess it was already fraying with Amberson's. Right. <laughs> it was... <laughs> Almost immediately. But, uh, was... but I mean, even just with, like within Noir, I, I, I would prefer Touch of Evil and The Stranger to The Lady from Shanghai. And I think the highs of Lady from Shanghai are, are higher, but at least higher than The Stranger. But The Stranger is just like at least... <laughs> at least it's coherent. <laughs> I I haven't seen The Stranger. It's it's very fun. I mean, it, it it's it's definitely a safe Orson Welles mm. piece of directing. But um, his he's what he's going to do is going to be interesting than ninety nine percent of all the directors. I I appreciate that like there few other directors can can deliver a knockout scene like he can. Um, mm-hmm. Like like if you think of the opening of Touch of Evil, or if you think of the battle on the um uh the battle of shrewsbury and chimes at midnight like he's got some he's got some really really great memorable scenes that are just shot in ways that that blow your mind right um yeah. and and i love that i obviously is certainly true for here uh so yeah it's a notable film uh even if we uh we, we I, I can't fault you it. yeah i don't i don't fault you for for loving it there, there's a lot to love in it um i just i'm not a big enough person to look past his weaknesses (laughs) but yeah so but let's going back to the the topic here rita hayworth huh i think she might be a movie star certainly in contention for the greatest femme fatale she she belongs in that conversation yeah i mean her stanwick i (laughs) I mean i really like i like gloria graham a whole whole lot um I'm very, very pro Gloria Graham, but that's true. I do enjoy Gloria Graham a lot. I've not seen Human Desire in a long time. Like I don't, I, I, I don't know how many of her noir performances I've seen, but she is always great. So I wouldn't be surprised if she wound up on my short list. Um, she, she's, she's in the mix for sure. This whole episode, it was just a nice reminder of movie star power and what, just like we had with Bogart last season, like what, what you know, someone like Hayworth can do when she gets to light up the screen and a whole movie can pivot around her. Um, so well, I think especially in like within noir, the femme fatale allows an actress to do things that she otherwise does not get to do in a very meaty, juicy way. Like she gets to drive the story in a way that like post Hayes code, you know, because like before Hayes Code, at least you'd you'd get as we were just talking about with um, that William Powell, Kate Francis, right? Is like you you get a lot more variety in what what women on screen could do. But after that, and sort of the retrenchment from World War II and all that, it it becomes a lot more limited uh, and conservative in a lot of ways with the roles that are being offered to women. But noir, especially the femme fatale role within noir allows a talented actress to do a lot and the, the great actresses really sink their teeth into it there's drama or melodrama there's danger there's sexuality there's there, there's glamour there's so so much gets funneled and that's why 
Gilda feels like every, it's just what a showcase. It's mm-hmm. every everything you could ask for. Whereas Stanwyck in Double Indemnity plays such a good villain, and she's so pure hardboiled cool and uh, icy, folk. and it's 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 a a totally different kind of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Hayworth and Gilda especially is it just exudes life and yeah, vitality yeah. and. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, I don't know if she's like my my all time favorite femme fatale, but it is one of the best star performances in noir. Yeah, I think I'd go. I'd certainly go in that direction. It's like, uh, it's it's just nice to. It's the, one of those one of the pleasures of watching classic Hollywood films is is getting to see some of those dynamic star turns that mm-hmm. that feel like like movies. Um, I'm sure we could pick it apart and find some examples, but it's just something about the way that, like, the way that a movie can get built around mm-hmm. um, around someone and give them a little bit of everything to chew on. Um, right. And make that, them seem bigger than life, you know? 20 yeah. feet tall on the silver screen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But also, we're here to talk about The Boss's Wife. So, um, you know, looking at these four films in close proximity to each other, for me, it is about that triangle. It is about all three legs of the the relationships becoming invested in and becoming knotted up and coming at a cost. Yeah, I, I think there are versions of the postman story that that work that that works well. I don't think it happens in our in our nineteen forty six adaptation, um, but I think like that's it. That's a great way of setting that dynamic up. Um, but there's no question among these four films that Gilda's the one that nails it. <laughs> not, not, not. I, uh, not uh, what an interesting uh, choice of words there. Not only is there incredible sexual tension between the two leads, but there's also incredible sexual tension with the boss between both of them. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just rich with, and the boss with is, that. The boss is working for the Nazis, and, and the got, boss is working for the Nazis. <laughs> he's got a danger cane, and he <laughs> and an escape plane to a second plane. Uh-huh. Uh huh. What and, a fun movie. Um, and and I'm totally okay with with the the Gilda love just kind of overtaking this because it just made me, um, it made me happy to to revisit and to watch something that just like leapt up that much in my personal estimation Same. and um and and you know reminds you of like like why it's worth revisiting things and Mm -hmm. uh, and why why sometimes you know things will hit you differently at different stages in life and after you've already consumed other other bits of entertainment and and learn i don't know it just every everything the stars aligned for gilda and uh and this episode did surely that it's uh i think it's Clearly, it, more so than we even set it up for when we put it on the on the program. Right. Well, you got two episodes. You got two two movies with Rita Hayworth. It's hard to go wrong. Mm-hmm. No. Like, truly, kidding. one of the best film stars of all time. Yeah. Tragic life. Do not read her biography if you don't want to be sad. No. Yeah. Oh. Oh, oh my. Real, real bad stuff. Oh. Um, or listen to the. Uh, uh, you must remember this episode about her. Very sad life. Well, anything else as we kind of bring this discussion to a close? Uh, no, I just want to know what's in the box. Uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something that you recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in the suitcase? Tristan. 
What's nuclear for you? I'm going to pick another revisit I, I made uh, uh, from the 40s, in fact, that, that um, leapt up considerably in my estimation the second time around. Uh, and liked it before, but really, really, really adored it. Um, and that would be uh, um, Ozu's Late Spring. Again, I think it's just like things hitting you at different stages in your life. Um, and there was there was something just so potent about the 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 tragedy of of being trapped in being trapped by tradition and being trapped by societal expectations and feeling like you have to perform a certain way and make a certain choice in life and walk a certain path. And the things that you give up because of that, um, not because you want to, but because you're trying to conform to others' expectations. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a, 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 a subtle and punishingly sad movie with, with fleeting moments of joy. But I'm like, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm thinking back on it and I'm, and I'm already getting emotional thinking on it. It's a very, very good movie. I loved it to pieces when I revisited it and, um, and highly recommend you know, I've been in a bit of a mood for a, an Ozu lately, um, so maybe I'll I'll pop that on sometime soon. The Ozu to me is just like a warm bath. Like every every time I watch one of his movies, it's just sinking into the hands of a master, and the movie just kind of washes over you. I also think, because given all the the um, noir that we've been watching, um, I also feel like it, it was such a it was such a tonic from mm, that style mm -hmm. of filmmaking to see something from from the 40s that and then and there's certainly a lot Visconti, um early visconti and uh and and ozu i, I like like obviously a continent apart but uh but but there's certainly a, an approach uh to to their that that relies on well there's more subtlety in ozu but um and more more restraint still but i don't know it's just that humanist touch and mm -hmm. uh, and 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 late spring in particular really uh, trusts the the viewer to pick up on what's going on under the surface and it's yeah. heartbreaking it's hard to go wrong with ozu even his early stuff i i usually find something uh worth worth watching in i've seen i've only seen three or four of his i need to i need to address that clearly because i love that so much when i went back to it uh and especially uh i got to watch one of his early silent um yakuza oh. films dragnet girl at the music box with a an original live score oh, uh by this like a, electronic band so it turned it into almost like drive like it was a very like modern pulsing score um by a band that i ended up uh, really getting into as a result um i'd have to find the name of them though but um that's cool it was just like the ideal way to watch that film um and and absolutely up to the my my appreciation of it um but uh but yeah um yeah, it, was, it was great uh my my recommendation my little uh what's in the box for me is uh it, it's currently october while we're filming this by the time you hear this it will no longer be and this will be no longer spooky season but um in honor of the times i watched uh an australian australian film that's long been on my watch list next of kin uh, which is a little exploitation horror flick 
like a less reputable The Shining. Um, huh. I've not heard of that. No, yeah, it. Uh, I don't think it's super well known, but it. it uh, it's definitely on like, you know, the lower budget end of the Australian cinema spectrum. But um, it stars uh, an, uh, an actress who's like pretty much this is the only thing she she was in, Jackie Karen, who uh, inherits a uh, rest home for the elderly, and then spooky things start happening, and she um, starts uncovering buried family secrets um and it's good throughout and then the third act just erupts into pure psychic horror not in like what's happening to her but just the just the heightened level of emotional trauma that is being expressed on screen kind of like cuts through what everything else it's you know it's not gonna be for everybody. Like it's it's good, but um, I've added it to my watch list. Yeah, I I had a blast watching it. I mean, right now it's available to stream free at all, all the uh, like ad supported TV stuff, so it's pretty easy to find. Um, yeah, I saw somebody described it as uh, Dario Argento's The Shining because um, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit a little bit giallo, a little bit haunted movie. It's there's it's got a lot going on. Um, it, it, worth worth the watch. Awesome. That sounds great. I mean, always, always on the market for more horror. Underwatched on on older Australian films too. It's uh, it's all it all pivots around Picnic at Hanging Rock for me. Sure. I mean, that's fair. That is a fantastic film. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. Join us next time when we're headed back overseas with some post-war European cinema that includes yet another spin on Postman Always Rings Twice with a familiar actor and a notable director, plus a Norwegian noir by a female director, no less. Should be a good time. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin MacLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>